You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome again to the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Ansel. Tonight's show is being underwritten by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, two different locals, Local 1464 and Local 124. IBEW Local 1464 is a labor union that represents nearly 800 workers in Missouri and Kansas, primarily utility workers and some in manufacturing. We strive to improve the lives of working people. When your power goes out, our members turn it back on. IBEW Local 1464 reminds all union members to support each other and encourage all workers to buy union and American-made products. And the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 124, supports the Heartland Labor Forum. We've been wiring Kansas City since 1905, and if you're not finding your electrical contractor at IBEW124.org, then you're not getting the best value for your money. The Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, first they were essential, then they were exhausted, then they were enraged. Tonight on the show, we'll talk to Jamie McCallum about his new book, Essential, How the Pandemic Transformed the Long Fight for Worker Justice. Then, it's another author, Manny Ness who says the millions that the world's migrant laborers send home to sustain their families is a drop in the bucket compared to the need for developmental capital. Indeed, in his new book, Migration as Economic Imperialism, he shows how migrants and their countries are increasingly fleeced by big corporations. In the news, United Auto Workers has a tentative settlement with Ford a new union contract to be ratified by the members, and the Biden administration proposes changes to overtime rules to include millions more in coverage. Our feature at the end of the show is Washington Window on Workers with Mark Grunberg, and we're going to talk about Mike Johnson. Ever heard of him? He's the new Speaker of the House. You're going to hear a lot about how he is anti-worker. And now for the news.
And this is the news from our side. October 26, 2023, last night on X, a.k.a. Twitter, UAW President Sean Fain sitting next to Vice President for Ford, Chuck Browning announced that they had a potential settlement with Ford. Fain said the stand-up strike is working by closing down additional plants at Stellantis and GM this week. Ford knew what was coming for them Wednesday if we didn't get a deal. That was checkmate. According to the Detroit Free Press, the tentative agreement, which could cover Ford's 57,000 union workers, includes an 11% wage increase the first year and totals 25% over a 4.5-year contract plus a $5,000 ratification bonus and cost-of-living adjustments. That's from an unofficial source. Fain and Browning touted the deal as the most lucrative since famed founding president Walter Ruther. The agreement will first have to be accepted by the UAW National Ford Council of Ford Union Presidents if they agree to send it to the members for ratification. Then the leaders will host a special Facebook live event to go through the proposed contract in detail with the membership. Then it would be put to a vote of the membership. Meanwhile, the union is sending striking Ford workers back to work, saying it's strategic to let Ford produce cars while plants of GM and Stellantis remain on strike, increasing pressure on them to settle. This week, the UAW called on workers at GM's Arlington, Texas plant to stand up and strike. We'll have Ford workers on the show next week to talk about it, and we've invited local president Tony Renfro to be on. But in the meantime, here's some comments from Heartland Labor Forum volunteer Tino Scalisi, who works at Ford Clay Como and who is not sure at all that his fellow UAW members there will ratify the deal. That plant builds the F. 150 truck and the transit van. Tino totals today we haven't had a major wage increase since the 2007 agreement. I think a former CEO of Ford said it best when he said an auto worker would have to make $100,000 a year in order to afford a new F-150. No one I know is driving what we build here, and a lot of people are facing eviction, food shortages, and all kinds of things. He explained that a high priority among the workers is an immediate and substantial wage increase, and that the settlement may not provide enough of that. This story comes to us from the Kansas City Labor Beacon. The Biden administration announced a dramatic new proposal rule <coughs> that would raise salary threshold below which salaried workers are automatically eligible for overtime pay. This would expand the number of Americans who benefit by roughly 12.5 million people, most of whom will be newly eligible for overtime protections. They are currently ineligible for overtime pay because they are classified or wrongly classified as having job duties that preclude receiving overtime. The Economic Policy Institute says workers making at or above the old threshold could have been excluded from overtime protection if their jobs were determined to be executive, administrative, or professional jobs. The new rule raises the threshold from 4.55 a week to 9.13 a week in pay. This change restores the original proposal of the Fair Labor Standards Act to ensure no one but the higher level workers with control over their time or task would work overtime without getting paid for it. However, 
Employers have abused this proposed for decades by opposing raising the pay threshold and by misclassifying workers. The rule was due to go into effect under the Obama administration, but when Trump moved into the presidency, he rescinded the rule. Tri-County Labor Council has screened candidates for Johnson, Wyandotte, and Leavenworth County posts to be voted on November 8. The Tri-County Labor Council represents unions in those three counties. You can find those endorsements by searching for them at the website of the Kansas City Labor Beacon. More Perfect Union has sent out a letter asking people to send a message to Las Vegas casino hotel owners. They report that 53,000 hotel and casino workers in Las Vegas are preparing to go on strike, but instead of negotiating a new contract with workers, owners are seeking to hire scab workers. Recently, Nevada's governor signed into law a repeal of the daily room cleaning requirement. This has created a brutal workload for housekeepers who, instead of keeping up with rooms each day, only enter a room after someone checks out, not knowing what type of shape that room might be in. The union cites this change as a driver in the growing injury rate of workers. As one guest room attendant at the Flamingo Las Vegas Hotel and Casino, Elida Amador said, if you have an accident, you get hurt. They also want to discipline you for getting hurt. But that's why we get hurt, because of the heavy workload, and we have to complete it. And if you don't complete it, they give us discipline. End quote. Members of the Culinary Workers Union Local 226 include guest room attendants, kitchen workers, bellmen, laundry, cooks, servers, and porters. They voted to authorize a strike, which could happen any week. The casino hotels involved are MGM Resorts, Caesars Palace, Wynn Encore Resorts, and Trump International Hotel Las Vegas, and More Perfect Union wants you to send them a message demanding that they meet workers' demands of fair pay and scheduling. These companies have huge profits, but since 2019, room rates in Vegas have risen by 95%, while the number of resort industry jobs has dropped by 11%. You can find the alert on the web at perfectunion.us. That's the news on our end. The news today was read by Stephen Hill, Tom Gepkin, Michael Savoir, and Taki Menelakos. We are the first ones to start, first ones to die. The first ones in line for that pie in the sky And we're always the last when the cream is shared out Or the worker is working when the fat cats are down We're the first ones to starve The first ones to die The first ones in line for that pie in the sky And we're always the last when the cream is shared out For the worker is working when the fat cats are down Yeah, the worker is working when the fat this song is called Worker's Song, originally performed by Dick Gorgon. This version is sung by a Boston-based musician, Tom Dong, during the COVID-19 pandemic for essential workers.
Good evening. You are listening to the Heartland Labor Forum. I am your host, Zhong Xingli, and on tonight's show, we will be talking to Professor Jamie McCallum, a labor scholar from Middlebury College, who recently published a book titled Essential, How the Pandemic Transformed the Long Fight for Worker Justice. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the book is more about our experiences in the pandemic. Who are the ones you deem to be essential workers? Why are you calling them essential? I know people are getting very familiar with the term because, you know, the media and we are all using that all the time. But in your analysis, in which sense essential? Yeah, it seems simple now, three years, four years after. So when I started doing this project, I was writing about healthcare, education, logistics, food and food preparation, some government workers, the people that were most publicly identified as essential, the people who you would see in public in you know March, April, May of 2020, the only people who were outside basically. However, that hides a lot of things like the government catalogs, essential workers as people who work in essential industries. But some of those people who work in essential industries work remotely. They're white collar workers who are bureaucrats and they work from home. So I'm talking about the smaller group of people who work face to face. And all those industries I just said, plus things like, you know, water and waste management to some technology and internet sector people. But it was fairly contentious. For example, I wrote this book by talking to people. And so I would talk to welders in one neck of the woods who were essential. And then they knew welders across town who were not, right? Who were laid off as not essential. And it was unclear who was doing what. You know, teachers who taught remotely for that first year of the pandemic were often considered essential workers by other essential workers. There's a whole slew of reasons for why that would be. Fast food workers who work in person during the pandemic for a lot of the time were often deemed like not essential by other essential workers. Like they looked down on them. And then there's a group of people who in the book, I say, I have a, had a fly fishing guide in Montana who never stopped working during the pandemic because the state was like, that's our biggest industry. You're gonna keep working. And clearly, fly fishing is not an essential um, thing. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that there's all kinds of reasons why certain people would obviously be classified as essential to health and well-being. And then a whole slew of other people whose jobs were very subjective and were basically left to the whims of either their employer or some sort of, you know, local government decision. So you talked to a variety of workers who contribute to the essential functioning of the societies. And some of the stories there were very, very moving in terms of uh -huh. what they had to really do during the pandemic while everyone else could possibly stay at home. Right. Um, I wonder how those people actually think about their own experience in the pandemic, because some of us clearly think these are heroes, right? Like they oh, to put them out there. Um, 
On the other hand, it is kind of a well-recognized fact that they were not protected sufficiently, um, especially yeah. at the beginning of the pandemic. How those people build their own experience? Yeah, it's pretty varied. Most people I talked to felt proud. They were like, we're saving the world right now. And they kind of were. So they felt for the first time, especially like nursing is still widely female dominated. And there's tons of respect out there and appreciation for doctors, right? And nurses are sometimes caught between the lower level staff in the hospital and the doctors and the sort of the social hierarchy. So nurses felt obviously because they were so front and center, the pandemic, like they had, were deserving of the attention that they were getting finally. So also did grocery clerks and delivery drivers and whatever else. But there's a, a strata of society, which is basically invisible. And all of a sudden they were super in your face during the pandemic. They're, these are the ones that are getting us our food. <laughs> so I think people felt a degree of appreciation for that. And the public, there was outpouring of support for them. But then after a while, that public support did not translate into like higher wages, more PPE, better healthcare, days off. It didn't really like trickle up the way that a lot of workers thought it would. And they began to see themselves not so much as heroes, but as like um, people would say crash test dummies or sacrificial lambs or like a lab rat. Like they were basically, be they were being used, right? On the one hand, they're useful. On the other hand, they're being used. And that distinction is stark, I think, to a lot of people. I think that changed the different parts of the pandemic, depending where you live, depending what kind of public you were surrounded by. Right. We changed pretty quickly from let's salute our healthcare heroes to nobody wants to work anymore. That happened like overnight in America. And, so, and a lot of people, a lot of workers who were interviewed in April, by September, they were like, you got to be kidding me. This is ridiculous. Like the public hates us. They're, they've turned against us. This is just the way it was for the rest of the time. And it seems you got the sense that that level of public support for essential workers was rather superficial, like rather thin and certainly has not lasted uh, very long. In your book, you mentioned that unlike the previous economic recessions that mostly affected goods producing industries, the COVID-19 pandemic hit the service industry pretty hard. And many service sector workers actually belong to the category of essential workers, right. especially the care sector workers. Mm -hmm. So is this just kind of part of the consequences of deindustrialization or service economy? Are these service jobs doomed to be so bad? No. So service sector jobs are not doomed to be bad. They could be good jobs. Any job could be a good job, as long as you pay people well and give them a voice at work or a few other things too. In the book, I draw out the sort of brief history of like post-Great Recession when middle-income jobs, after a number of years, were lost during the recession, mostly replaced with low-income jobs. So if you look at the data, that's sort of how we solved that crisis. The solution to that crisis was more low-income jobs, especially more low-income jobs in the service sector. That's where the gig economy was born. For the gig economy to happen, you have to have like a group of unemployed people 
who are free at any hour of the day to work for almost nothing whenever. And all of a sudden you had that. That pool of workers was greatly expanded than it was in 2000. Those people became either laid off if they worked in restaurants and some other places or essential. So they bore the brunt of the sort of two faces of the pandemic in all different kinds of ways. People knew that they would have to re-enter the labor market at some point and that being laid off would make that harder. In Europe, they just furloughed everybody. They didn't, you just, you just didn't fire 100,000 people. And I think that you have a kind of reallocation problem there when you have to, years later, all of a sudden try to hire all these people back. Right. Um, so I think the, the service sector-ness of the recession was rather unique, um, driven by the effects of the virus. And to some extent, that group of people was, as I said, sort of, created or certainly enlarged after the recession, 2008. Right. We don't have to have a tipped minimum wage of 235 in restaurants. We could just pay people 15 an hour like everybody or 25 an hour or whatever it is. There's no reason why, um, well, there's a reason, obviously. I mean, we sort of, there's a reason why those things are that way, but it, it doesn't certainly doesn't have to be that way. And at times it does seem like groups of employers and government essentially acting together to ensure that wages never rise. They're rising a little, you know, they've risen now, um, mm -hmm. but the federal minimum wage hasn't. So there, there are forces keeping those jobs bad, precarious hours, mm -hmm. no unions, all those things are totally subjective. It's not like people don't want you don't try to organize unions. It's hard to do it. You know, they get they, they lose. And so I think the factors that make those jobs bad are pretty different in different places, which just goes to show that it's not a done deal. From your research, how have unions made um, contributions to protecting and supporting essential workers during the pandemic? If anyone looks at the American economy studies this stuff for any length of time, what becomes immediately clear is the weakness of our labor movement mm -hmm. was an incredible driving factor of how the whole pandemic went. The fact that most people have bad jobs with no voice at low wages and that OSHA basically has no teeth, all those factors meant that a lot of people were working in unsafe conditions for a very long time. It doesn't have to be that way, obviously. So I used to be a nursing home organizer for the labor movement. So I've been obsessed with union nursing homes since I was in my 20s, a long time. So during the pandemic, we did this research that shows that if you are a resident in a nursing home that is unionized, then you are about 11% less likely to die of COVID than you were if you did not have a union there. If you're a worker in the nursing home, you're, I think, about 10% less likely to be infected with COVID. Those are huge numbers. If you extrapolate, if you can imagine industry-wide unionization in nursing homes, that would be equivalent to about, I think, almost 10,000 excess COVID deaths. What that means is like union workers just had more and quicker access to PPE their facilities were safer because they, along the way, could make complaints about air quality and ventilation. And union workers would call OSHA and OSHA would act uh, before those things got out of control. There's all kinds of reasons why those nursing homes were safer before the pandemic. And then during and after, you got time off to get vaccinated. 
you weren't wearing garbage bags and raincoats as PPE. The union helped facilitate you getting quicker PPE. So it, it makes a huge difference. Like the life or deathness of American nursing homes, which was the epicenter of the pandemic, was the result of micro forces that stripped workers and patients of their right to either work safely or live. I think we don't really give enough credit to the fact that some of those forces were mitigated by the labor movement. If you make higher wages, if you make 25 an hour versus 15, you don't have to work in two nursing homes. You don't transmute the disease from one home to the next. Tons of people I interviewed like broke down when I was like, do you think you spread COVID? Like, Absolutely. The very people that we're caring for, we are killing the people next to them in bed. Like They routinely acknowledge this. They were powerless unless, you know, there was fewer strikes during the pandemic, but most were led by healthcare workers, nursing homes, hospitals, et cetera. Since the book is published, we did some other research, which talks about this in other ways. For example, if you look at health and safety data, what it shows is that union workplaces have higher rates of accidents, injuries, and illnesses. This is just because union workplaces report like accidents, injuries, and illnesses, right? Because their workforces are not scared of being fired if they point out a mistake on the job, which keeps your job safer. And then, as I said before, OSHA did not do its job during the pandemic. OSHA is underfunded and understaffed, and it couldn't possibly be expected to go to put out every fire that was that was there, but they did, they did very few anyway. And so in that circumstance, workers had to stand up for each other. And like workplace safety was to some extent a factor of like whether or not you could organize and whether or not you could fight back, whether or not you could demand certain conditions. And the only way, the best way to do that is if you had a union. There were about a third of the strikes in 2020 were led by workers without unions. And people make a lot of this fact, like there's this spontaneous uprising. Those were very small. In, in some ways, I make light of that. Those movements were very small. They were sporadic. They were short-lived. They didn't always get what they wanted. So there's really no substitute for a strong, more militant organization. What kind of workplace organizing strategies do you observe or do you think we can learn from essential workers? Yeah, yeah. I do think... There was a way in which the the black and brownness of the essential working class did cross pollinate into Black Lives Matter, into Black freedom movements. I mean, the summer of 2020 was the murder of George Floyd protests, the largest protests, I think, in American history since the Vietnam War. I mean, they were all led by black and brown, either unemployed people or essential workers. And the leaders of essential workforce movement, like Chris Smalls, was also a face in BLM. And so I think there was a lot of overlap between those movements in a way that we didn't see before. There was a moment when we realized black people are dying of COVID at higher rates, not because they're more susceptible, but because they're more exposed. And that, that difference it's 100% because they're essential workers, because they're funneled into essential jobs. And I think the Black Freedom Movement understood that very clearly. And so there was a real close connection. There was a moment during the pandemic when like the anti-race, movements for anti against anti-racism or for anti-racism and movements for worker justice kind of meshed. 
and we should learn from those moments, hopefully. I say throughout the book that um, the old labor slogan, injury to one is injury to all, is Mm -hmm. a good slogan. It's also like statistically true, especially during the pandemic, right? We are literally all better off if we are all better off. If you work in an area where your grocery store clerks can never take a day off and can't voice their concerns on the job, your grocery store was more dangerous because the workers there were more likely to have COVID and then you would get COVID. It was just so obvious that if you lived in places where workers had more protections, the general public at large would be safer. We want those workers to be as absolutely healthy as possible. And that does cost more money. So it goes like we should put more money into it then. So I think the takeaway is that the working conditions of essential workers are the living conditions of the rest of us. Whether we have those crappy jobs or not, we have a stake in them being better jobs and Mm -hmm. the rest of us, so to speak. And so to me, the essential worker issue is an issue related to general public health, well-being, and fortitude. There was a moment during the pandemic when essential workers were at the forefront of concerns around national security. That almost never happens in America, but they were like that then. And to some extent, they are like that now. And so I think that when we think about the working conditions of our teachers, are the learning conditions of our kids, of our students. A lot of people realized that during the pandemic, then we forgot it, basically, Mm -hmm. right? Like we forgot it. So like we have to remember it. Right now, the wages of ordinary working class people are much higher than they were a year and a half ago. I think to some extent, the forces that are driving up wages, we should try to capitalize on those and keep them and keep them higher. There's no greater lesson we can learn, I think, from the pandemic that we're better off when they're better off to some extent. Our our fates are tied to their fortunes. And so if we can do that, I think we will have learned a big lesson when the next pandemic hits. I think the main one would be that there was a public reckoning for workers, and that has translated into widespread public support for workers and their issues. Like support for unions and working class people's issues have never been higher. It has not translated into like government support or corporate changes. And that is the next step. Thank you. We are talking to labor scholar Jamie McClam on his new book, Essential, How the Pandemic Transformed the Long Fight for Worker Justice. Thank you, Jamie. Cool. Thanks for having me. Tune in to Economics for the People this Thursday evening at 7 p.m. Why do capitalist firms swoop in following natural disasters and human-made ones and exploit local residents? In this week's show, we have a conversation about disaster capitalism with Dr. Raja Swamy. In our regular features, we discuss the cost of living adjustment and the million attacks. Don't forget to tune in to Economics for the People this Thursday evening at 7 p.m. Join KKFI on November 2nd at Drexel Hall at Kansas City Iris Center for Music Unites, featuring Calvin Arsenia and Friendly Thieves. Music Unites, a benefit for KKFI, brings together the community for a special night of music. Doors open at 7.30, the concert starts at 8. Go to kkfi.org to purchase tickets and to learn more.
We Get the Job Done from the Hamilton Mixtape by Canaan Residente Snow, The Product, and Ritz. Hi, this is Judy Ansel. Today, the world is filled with migrant workers. They move within their own countries, like the workers in Mexico who grew corn in places like Michoacan and now live and work for wages way up north in Ciudad Juarez. Or they may be international migrants, like the people from Asia and Africa who assemble cars in Korea and electronics in Malaysia. Unskilled workers from Zimbabwe work in South Africa packaging food. In sum, there are over 280 million people today who are working outside of their home countries, sending billions of dollars back home to families. They're not just H2B workers picking grapes in California or working for lawn care companies here in Kansas City. They're all over the world, separated from their families and suffering working conditions that we thought we had abolished decades ago. Our guest tonight to talk about this and what's wrong with this system is Emmanuel Ness, or Manny. He teaches political science at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York, and also is a visiting professor of sociology at the University of Johannesburg. He's written many books about labor conditions in the global South, including China and India. His latest is Migration as Economic Imperialism. Welcome to the show, Manny. Well, it's a pleasure to be on Heartland uh, Radio, precisely because you're here and uh, you have great guests and it should be an important discussion, I think. Well, I hope so. So let's first kind of start from the ground up. You've investigated the work of migrants in many places. Can you give us a kind of profile of the circumstances of labor for many of them? Uh, yes, I think one has to distinguish between highly skilled migrants and uh, low-wage migrants. So highly skilled migrants get uh, more wages. Uh, they are treated far better. They don't have to pay for transportation or any part of the migration infrastructure, including recruitment, etc., all that gets paid for, they usually come from very affluent backgrounds or privileged backgrounds in their home countries. But the vast majority of the migrants that you were talking about at the very top of the show uh, are uh, low-wage migrants, uh, most who don't have skills. Many come from the countryside, and they are subject to arrest 
imprisonment and deportation. And that includes migrants that come to uh, countries, uh, destination states like the United States, who come on visas. So who come legally because it's very easy to become undocumented. That's the vast majority of migrants. So that's those. these are the migrants that really the West depends on and our societies uh, of the global North, affluent societies basically, depend on migrants. We could not exist without migrants. They, pro they provide the essential jobs that allow us to live uh, the lives that we do, uh, uh, you know, and, and especially the affluent, but, but everybody really. They worked during COVID and did essential jobs. So I know immigrants here from Latin America who are living really austere lives because they are supporting their families back home and sending remittances back to them just to keep those families alive and sheltered. And so they work ungodly amounts of overtime. They rarely get paid overtime. There's tons of labor law violations that are committed against them. They live in cramped apartments. Many of them are men who live with other men and have really not much of a social life at all. So how much in remittances, these, the money they send back are called, is called remittances. How much do the hundreds of millions of migrants send back to their home countries each year? And why do you say that relying on remittances fails to lead to any kind of development in poor countries. What's the impact also on those countries when they send their youth out? That's a complicated question. So for, first off, how much do they send? Uh, well, okay, so as I said uh, at the initial point that most of the money that is transmitted is by highly skilled, uh, affluent, privileged migrants who uh -huh. get money back to their home countries or back to their families, a lot of money. And the vast majority of migrants remit uh, a share of that money. All told, there's about $1 trillion in remittances uh, that are sent home. And these are considered to be funds that are going to develop the countries. Um, and you're absolutely right in terms of the conditions in the United States, but, but that's true throughout the world. And um, so in the area that you are an expert, Central America, Honduras in particular, the, the number of remittances uh, represents about 30% of the gross domestic product of the country. And Honduras is the poorest of all Central American countries, the three major ones, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And so uh, you're absolutely right. And yet, you know, the really interesting point is that while Honduran workers in the United States are, you know, like I said, doing essential jobs, agriculture, construction, services, home services, they're women, uh, usually, as well as uh, manufacturing and the gig economy. So they're exploited here. In many cases, they go back home, many don't, and they end up indebted, but they do send back a modicum of money so the country could barely exist, which I don't think is a form of development. And that actually leads to your second question, I think. And that's uh, why migration is becoming the new form of dependency, because the U.S. and other uh, countries uh, uh, do not uh, contribute to the development of uh, the 
uh, countries of the global south, which represent about 80% of the world's population, that uh, these countries are increasingly dependent on the small amount of money. You know, don't forget also that many of these Honduran workers also have to pay, as you were pointing out, they have to pay for living expenses. They have right. to pay for transportation to this country, which, uh, you know, in, in which they might have, you know. Which, uh, which just let me interrupt, which can cost them thousands of dollars if they hire a coyote. Exactly. And then they have to pay it back or they have, there's a lot of violence and so forth. Their, their families could be threatened at home and so forth. Right. But you say that this doesn't lead to any development in Honduras or any yes. of the other countries? Absolutely not. And I, 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 I think this is the real problem with respect to saying that migration is the new form of economic development that has replaced all other forms, including foreign aid and so forth. In other words, the United States does not have to give foreign aid, not to say that they ever really contributed a, a whole lot anyway, but they also benefit from extremely low-wage labor, highly exploited labor, as you're pointing out, working long hours every week. So the amount that they could send home is, uh, you know, a fraction of what is necessary to uh, advance a country, if one wants to do it in the ways that the United States would like to in other Western countries. I mean, um, in terms of building a, a industrial base and a advanced capitalist country uh, economy, which is probably not the best way for Honduras, Honduras to develop in any case, but it does provide for some relief to families for food, for for education. Maybe somebody gets married and it gives a certain amount of money to a family member, but a very small amount. And uh, I mean, I, I think that this is really something that needs to be challenged. And the book, Migration as Imperialism, you know, demonstrates that those people who are, in the case of the United States, uh, who are migrants who come to the United States are essential workers, whether they're documented or undocumented, and most are undocumented. But that's the way the United States wants to have its migrant workers. They can choose to have them documented, but they've chosen to have them undocumented, and they need them. Uh, and they, in fact, you know, I'm referring to the United States, I'll say we need even more migrant workers. And yet, uh -huh. we well, you know, <laughs> you know, every time every time I, I talk to some business person who says he can't find enough workers, my response is open the border. But <laughs> of course, politically, they're not willing to do that because they they prefer evidently to have a system of highly exploited people who don't have proper papers to work in order to be able to get cheap labor. But, really you know, the book is titled Migration as Imperialism. Why is it imperialist? And, you know, maybe you better define uh, briefly what imperialism is so that people can understand. Yeah, I'll be very brief. Imperialism is a process that has taken place over the last 150 to 200 years. One can go lo longer, but I'm, I'm referring to economic imperialism in which the economies of the global south, uh, places like the Philippines, um, uh, there is a huge amount of extraction of wealth from these uh, societies and these countries, and uh, that wealth is uh, sent to rich countries like the United States. I mentioned Philippines because it was a colony of the United States. That's true for many other countries. So independence did not necessarily 
and imperialism, because imperialism is linked to colonization and, and, and so forth. Independence actually led to higher levels of dependence or dependency on the West. But the, certainly it's true that the West actually depends far more on those workers who come to the United States amongst uh, those workers who actually work in places like Central America to make profits, uh, to uh, accumulate surplus value and so forth. So uh, American business people, uh, capitalists and so forth, do extremely well through both migrant labor and, and workers who are actually in global South countries. That's a really interesting way of, of framing the whole issue. You know, you know, I remember reading that the Philippines gives prizes to their citizens who stay away the longest working and sending back money. It's very clear that a country like the Philippines is extremely dependent on exporting people. And, and the, fa the fact that that's part of a, a worldwide system which lives off of these migrants, at least by, by the rich countries, and lives off of them and extracts profits from their labor rather than simply just getting their resources like in traditional imperialism. Uh, absolutely, you're, you're precisely right about that. I, I think that's my analysis because time is short that I completely agree. That's I got it, I read the book. <laughs> and the book, we're, we're talking to Manny Ness and his book is called Migration as Imperialism. And we only have a few more minutes, but uh, I want to ask you about politics in the U.S. Then you talk you talk about rising what you call populism around the world. I don't like to call it populism because I still refer back to the, the original populists who are quite different. But anyway, we have a re rising reaction a la Donald Trump, et cetera, against migration and we can't pass immigration reform. Our labor movement has taken both sides of that. And many American workers, you know, look at migrants, especially the ones who are being exploited with very low wage work, and they look at them as competition. How do Americans, American workers, do they benefit from the system or are they actually hurt? Okay, I'll answer your question bluntly. Uh, American workers benefit from migrants every single day. Uh, and uh, we benefit through having fresh fruit, fresh vegetables. Uh, migrant workers are those who actually produce those vegetables. They harvest them, they plant them, etc. Uh, migrant workers do much of the construction in this country. They do so at a very low cost. They're not competing with American workers in these jobs, but actually in some cases they're, you know, building new wings on American homes and so forth at a very low cost. Uh, people seek to uh, pay a lower amount of money. Uh, and uh, I would also say as a general rule, migrants also are uh, benefiting, benefiting the US economy because they are contributing so much to the society with, uh, without actually getting anything back. And that uh, really, what I mean by not getting anything back is that they're getting very low wages and they're barely surviving. And that contributes to lower wage consumer items, but also uh, lower wage services, care work. If, you know, uh, women in the United States need to go to work and they have children, who takes care of them? Or dependents who are older, who takes right. care of them? Well, let me push back a little bit because, in fact, 
in certain uh, areas, particularly construction, American workers do compete with uh, with undocumented workers. And, uh, you know, our American unions have finally w- woken up to that. And they're really trying to organize uh, those those people. But but beyond that, aren't we all, or at least people in the working class, hurt because the low wages that are paid to migrants lowers the wage scale for all of us? Well, that's an interesting uh, point. Uh, I, I would say that maybe trade unions and labor unions with respect to construction may be competing against migrant workers. But those migrant workers, I've always said for the last 20 years, are actually American workers because they're working here. And uh, the fact that they are paid lower wages does diminish the wages. Uh, I I can't deny that does diminish the wages of uh, Americans. But I think a very small share of those workers' wages are uh, uh, lost or those jobs are lost. Uh, But because most of the migrant workers are employed in jobs that would never be created in the first place had they not been here uh, or recruited to come here or out of desperation. Okay. We have only about a minute left and I want to ask you, so, so what do we do about all this? If, you know, if this is, this is a system that's just built on exploitation, what's your solution? Well, I I think first of all, we have to become conscious of the fact that uh, migrant workers are, are valued members of our society. They are American workers in the sense they work here they need to be protected. They need to be valued in a way that uh, the government does not. I think the government wants undocumented migrants rather than doesn't want them. Uh, And that contributes maybe to the populism you're talking about or the, uh, what I would call xenophobia. Uh, The solution would be, I think, I know that there needs to be a redistribution of income on a global level. So, I mean, for your listeners, I would say that there should be greater levels of taxation, et cetera, for those businesses uh, that are really profiting um, from migrants. Uh, though there should be less consumption in this country. I don't think we need as many cars. I know you're in the Midwest, so <laughs> cars. Yeah, but, but, um, we have two car plants here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I'm just saying that I think there needs to be kind of a global redistribution of uh, wealth. And uh, that's something that many others are arguing for, uh, not just because of migrant, but because of the the planet itself, which is heating up and threatening the future of humanity. So uh, migrants are actually a reflection of that. They're the canary in the mine. Thank you very much, Manny Ness. The book is Migration as Imperialism. And who publishes it? Uh, Polity Press. It's distributed by Wiley. Wiley. Okay. Thank you very much, Manny. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Music means that we're going to talk to Mark Grunberg. I'm Judy Ansel, and Mark is on the phone from D.C., where he is going to tell us about our brand new Speaker of the House, Representative Mike 
Johnson. Hi, Mark. What do you got to say? Well, what do I got to say? Well, the first thing you should know about Mike Johnson is, is he's mega. He's mega. <laughs> okay. Mega. I thought you said mega, and I know he's definitely not that. <laughs> um, and the second thing you should know is that he's anti he's anti worker according to AFL CAO. He's anti gay according to his uh, his own legislative record, and just to make sure, he's also anti labor. Well, if he's anti worker, he's anti labor, isn't he? Right. Exactly. So, so how do you know that? One, I, can't, I can't remember what it was, but you get the idea. So. Yeah. Right. Okay. But uh, <laughs> it's. I know it's been a dizzying couple of weeks there, but. Um, you know, I, I've heard I've heard a lot about his his ultra ultra conservative politics and his attempt to overthrow the election in 2020. But tell us about his labor record. Well, his labor record, his lifetime labor record from the AFL-CIO and their voting voting ratings is he agrees with them 10 percent of the time. So so 90 <clears> percent <throat> of the time he's on the wrong side. Correct. And okay. last year. I haven't tallied this year yet, was a zero. Okay. Just like many other Republicans, by the way. Any particularly notable bills that were in uh, Labor's favor that he voted against? Yeah, things like every single every single bill to help pull us out of the uh, pandemic or depression. Uh-huh. Yeah, all of them. All the, the, you name it, all the way from the start. So what's... All the, all, Okay, so what's this guy's vision of a future for America? Do you have any idea? His vision of the future for America, I, I remember the other thing I forgot to ask. He is so right to life, he wants to ban all abortions. That's one thing. Okay. He's, he, his vision is a very, very right, extreme right-wing provision, uh, vision of America. It's, the 1950s only worse. Uh, yeah, but, Think of, think of uh, the worst parts of last of, of the last century, and you've got Mike Johnson. And, okay. let's, and let's not forget he's also from the oil patch in Louisiana. Uh, so that gives yes. <laughs> okay. Well, and and when you refer to that, you're talking about an extremely polluted area of Louisiana that's been controlled for years by chemical right. and oil companies. Right. Uh, he's from Shreveport, but it's uh, it's not quite as bad as down at New Orleans. But okay. still, the oil patch is the oil patch. Do we happen to know, you know, like who his biggest donors are? Um, <clears throat> his biggest donors, in, in total among, among campaign finance committees, are the are the oil companies' PACs. You know, but, but there are several Gee, of them. I'm, I'm shocked. Are, yeah. And that, but the biggest single donor was the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Oh, really? And wow. its members. Yeah. <laughs> so the first. So the first thing he introduced as soon as he became speaker was a, a resolution which passed the House today, yeah, which was I, I, very I one-sided. Yeah, I heard, and there were only 10 votes against it, and it was an endorsement of Israel? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. right. Well, um, I'm sure that a lot of attention is going to get focused on the uh, funding of the debt in the ne- uh, next month. And w- yes. do we have any idea how... How he's going to lead the house to keep the government open? Well, this is interesting because the leadership of both parties met with Biden today, and apparently, including him, 
And it was apparently a very cordial meeting. He, the, 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 the vibes coming out of it were saying, we're going to try and work together. Now, whether they actually will or not, given, given the philosophical gulf, especially in the Republican Party, is another matter. But if he's going to try, that yeah, well, sort of give him a point in his favor. We'll yeah. see if he succeeds. Yeah, well, we may uh, be in another race for a House speaker next month after that happens, too, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. Okay, thanks, Mark. We're out of time. Thanks for the update. Okay, talk to you later. Bye-bye. And now for a very brief Heartland Labor Forum calendar. Uh, the Workers Unite Film Festival, which takes place in New York, but is available online to anybody, starts tomorrow and, and runs through November 12th. It's a fabulous list of new films about working people. Just Google Workers Unite Film Festival or go to bhttp, bit.ly slash tix, WUFF for Workers Unite Film Festival 12. The organization Al-Hadaf is holding a vigil to honor those killed in Palestine tomorrow, Friday at 4 p.m. on the steps of City Hall, downtown KCMO. The UU Forum is as usual at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday at All Souls Church. And there's a Day of the Dead poetry reading Friday, November 3rd, 7 p.m. on Zoom. And uh, you can register by finding our calendar on our Facebook page. Missouri, Kansas, Missouri Dream Alliance, Day of the Dead fundraiser for DACA renewals, Saturday, November 4th, 3 to 6 p.m. at Bar K, 501 Berkeley Parkway in Kansas City. That's it for tonight's show. Be sure to tune in next week. We're going to be talking about the UAW settlement with Ford and on uh, and the <laughs> a show called Amazon Delivers Bad Faith. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Stephen Hill. And stay tuned for the debut, debut show of Economics for the People. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back to us too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our pride, cause we are the working class and that's the place to be.